0: Read together verses seven through ten, and then we will pray. John chapter four, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and He would have given you living water. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray that You would be our vision. We thank You that we have such a clear portrait of Christ, our Savior, in Your Word. Our desire is that we might see Him clearly today. Grant that Your voice might be heard in the text of Scripture today, that You might teach us, that You might instruct us, and that You might be our guide. We commit ourselves to You in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you have heard me mention... From this pulpit, Charles Spurgeon, he was known as the Prince of Preachers. He preached in London during the 1800s, and I'm not sure if he was ever dubbed in his own day the Prince of Preachers, but he is known by that commonly today. One of the reasons he was called the Prince of Preachers was because of his incredible oratory ability, not only his ability to preach to uh, thousands of people, sometimes over 10,000 people at one time without any amplification at all but also his ability to produce written works, preaching, and in written uh, written form, both his sermons and commentaries. Um, Charles Spurgeon was a voluminous author. You may not know this about him, but he is the single most prolific author in the history of the Christian church. No other single author has produced as much written work as Charles Spurgeon has. Between his sermons and his commentaries and his newspapers and his articles, no other author, living or dead, has ever produced as much material as Charles Spurgeon did. In fact, I would say that if you were to make it your goal to read everything that Charles Spurgeon wrote, you would nobody in this building would accomplish that, unless you are a phenomenal reader. Nobody would accomplish that before they died. This from a man who only lived to be 58 years old. is that incredible? That in itself is incredible. Not only is Spurgeon noted for his preaching, for his writing... For his gift of language, his ability to captivate people with a spoken and preached word. And he was faithful to the text, and he was diligent in his study, and, a, and an incredible reader and diligent in all that he did. But one thing that set Spurgeon apart in his own day was his unmatched passion for evangelism and soul winning. He was somebody who studied soul winning and evangelism. He was somebody who uh, constantly, every opportunity he had, he took it to win a soul or to preach Christ to somebody, every text of scripture that Spurgeon preached, Old Testament, New Testament, poetry, narrative, prophecy, didn't matter what it was, he would find some basis for a gospel appeal. And that set him apart in his day for two reasons. Because there were the hyper-Calvinists of Spurgeon's day who said, you should never proclaim the gospel to any public setting because you don't know if they're the, elector, if the non-elector there or not. Since you can't tell who the non-elect are, you have no warrant to preach to them the gospel which is ludicrous, and Spurgeon rejected that. And so he was constantly in his sermons begging people, beseeching people to be reconciled to God through the death of his son. On the other side were the people who didn't want to present the gospel, and they wouldn't because they didn't want to offend the sinner. And Spurgeon stood out in his day for his constant pleadings with people to be reconciled to God, to trust Christ, to repent of their sin, and to embrace him. Spurgeon was known for that. And when Spurgeon preached through John chapter 4, it was no different. Charles Spurgeon saw in John chapter 4, and I think he was right, a perfect model of a soul winner in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 4, Spurgeon said, we have here a portrait of what a perfect soul winner looks like. In fact, his sermon on the text that I'm preaching today was titled, The Model Soul Winner. And Spurgeon gleaned from John chapter 4, instruction for us, examples for us of how we ought to be involved in the work of evangelism. Because what we have in John chapter 4 is Jesus encountering somebody he had never met before and leading that individual through basically the gospel to a presentation of himself to meet the very need that she had and to bring her to salvation which is found in him. And Spurgeon said we have in John chapter 4 a perfect example for us. I would be willing to bet, or at least I would guess, that most of your opportunities to share your faith to evangelize look more like John chapter 4 than they do Acts chapter 16. I doubt if anybody, and I can see right now you're looking up in, the, in your eye, in the corners of your eyes, saying what well, was on Acts chapter 16. I doubt if anybody here has had an experience in the last week where somebody walked up to you, fell down in front of you, and said, said, Sir or madam, what must I do to be saved? Right? It's more looks more like John chapter 4. I doubt if this last week you had anybody come up to you like Jesus had in Mark chapter 10 and say, A good teacher, a good person, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Most of the encounters that you and I have are like John chapter 4. We come across a total stranger in standing in line at the restaurant, standing in line at the theme park, standing in line at the grocery store. We meet them in very ordinary circumstances, very ordinary people doing very ordinary things. That is exactly what's going on in John chapter 4. You are not likely, and this has never happened to me, And if it never happens to me in the course of my entire life, I won't be surprised. Somebody, Nobody has ever come up to me and said, what must I do to be saved? That just doesn't happen to me. I don't find somebody turning around to me in the line at the grocery store and saying, do you know what I must do to inherit eternal life? I mean, I notice that you've got a Christian t-shirt on. You're wearing your Coca-Cola Lake Bible Camp t-shirt. Tell me what I must do to be saved. Nobody ever does that. Most of the encounters that you and I have, most of the opportunities that we are presented with, Look just like John chapter four, do they not? They most certainly do. And so as we work our way through this chapter, we're going to be looking at things that you and I can learn, things that you and I can glean about personal evangelism from the example that the Lord gives us here in John four. Now we've looked in the last couple weeks about what set up this encounter with Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus had heard that the, uh, the, the Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. In order to avoid an untimely conflict with them, he left Judea and he traveled up through Samaria on his way to Galilee. And on his way to Galilee, he had a very timely encounter with the woman at the well. A divine encounter, a predestined encounter, a providential encounter, a working of God's sovereign grace, where Jesus knew he had to go through Samaria to meet this woman at the uh, well at the sixth hour on this particular day. And Jesus was there. The disciples went away into the city to buy food. And Jesus was alone when this woman came to him to draw water. It was at Jacob's well. It was in Samaria. And so that is what we've seen has set up this whole encounter between Jesus and the woman. So now we begin at verse 7. Look what verse 7 says. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Now that's just an ordinary encounter. That is an ordinary thing for a woman to do. What is perhaps a little extraordinary is that this woman would be coming from Sychar, the local village, about a half a mile away, out to this well to draw water. There were lots of wells in the region, and yet you can see down, is it verse 15, where the woman says to him, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come all the way out here to draw water. She recognized that she was coming further than she had to go, clear out to the well. There were other wells that the woman could have visited and draw water from. Why this well? Why Jacob's well? It could be one of three reasons, and any one of these three could be the reason. First, it could be because of the significance of the well itself. You notice that she says, our father Jacob dug this well, gave it to his son Joseph. She knew that. There was a historical significance to it. There was a spiritual significance to that well. Perhaps in her mind, she thought because of the historical and cultural connection and the symbolism of that well, that she would go to that well because it was special. She calls Jacob her father. You know how sometimes we get sort of a nostalgic commitment to material things or places or things like that? And it's really childish, it's ludicrous that we get attached to things in that way. Perhaps she was attached to the well in that way. Or it could be because this well itself was a source of incredible, of, of incredible water, different than the water in the surrounding regions. In fact, the word for well that's used in verse 6 when it makes mention of Jacob's well was there and Jesus being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, that word is a word that is used not of an ordinarily dug well or a man-made well. That was a word, pege is the word in Greek, and it was used of a spring-fed well, or a spring, a natural spring. Jacob had dug this well, and it was over top of a spring. So in the bottom of this well was bubbling up the water that came out of the spring. Now you can see the symbolism when Jesus talks about the water of life that would be bubbling up. He's alluding to the fact that in the bottom of this well was a spring, and Jacob built the well there for that reason, because it was an abundant supply of water. So this water may have been cleaner, cleaner or clearer or more refreshing or colder, more abundant than any other well in the area. So it might be that that's the reason she came all the way out there. If you're really, really thirsty and you want good water, this well may have been the place to go, worth the extra half a mile journey to go fetch that water as opposed to any of the water which would have been closer. Or it may be, and I suggested this last week, that the woman came all the way out to this well because this well afforded her a chance to be alone. She could avoid the other women in the village. That's why she came at the sixth hour, not the normal drawing time for women to go out and draw water, but she made it to the well at that that time in order to avoid contact with the other women because of her sin. She was a pariah, an outcast in her society, and people would have looked down on her. So she wanted to be alone. So even though she's trying to avoid people, she can't avoid the Savior because the Savior was pursuing her, and he was there waiting. So she came out to the well, and there's... Look, it's an ordinary activity for a woman to do, to draw water out of the well. That was women's work in that day. That's not a sexist comment. It's not a chauvinist comment. We have things that women ordinarily do in our society. It wasn't unheard of for men to draw water, but it was the normal duty of a woman to draw water. Men were involved in other things. That was kind of the lady's job, to go out and draw water out of the well. And they would go out to the well. They would meet around the well. They would chit-chat. They would draw water for the evening, and then they would go back home in the evening. That's what women did. So this is an ordinary day, an ordinary woman doing a very ordinary task. What is extraordinary to me is what Jesus does with the ordinariness of this. I want you to think about this for a second. From the woman's perspective, as she came out to draw water, this was just an ordinary day, right? This was an ordinary task. She had done this hundreds of times, gone out to the well to fetch some water for the family. This was like any other day. She is on her way out to the well not thinking of spiritual things, Not pursuing a Savior, not looking for an encounter with God, not looking for salvation, not even aware of what her need was. Her mind was probably a mile away from anything spiritual, anything related to her own condition of her soul. But for her, no day was more important for her own soul than this day, because on this day, Jesus would do something extraordinary with something that was very ordinary. So this woman went out to a place that she had gone a hundred times before, doing the very thing that she had done a hundred times before, and she saw the very scene that she had seen a hundred times before. And that was a stranger, a traveler, sitting by the well, waiting to be refreshed. She had probably seen that dozens of times. Cooling off, waiting before he went on up into Galilee. So she approached the well. Nothing extraordinary about it, but in the providence of God, this day was unique. I would be willing to bet that if we were to go around the room and hear the conversion testimonies of the people here, that most of the conversion testimonies of people here would revolve around very ordinary circumstances on very ordinary days. Wouldn't they? Probably nothing extraordinary happening on that day in particular. For me, that's the way it was. I went to camp with my friends. And I attended a chapel. And I woke up on the day that I got saved, thinking I was saved, but I really wasn't. I woke up that morning, and for all I knew, that day was going to end like every other day had in my life. Just an ordinary day. So I went to the ordinary chapel to hear the ordinary message from the ordinary speaker. There was nothing extraordinary about the chapel, been there all that week. Nothing extraordinary about the speaker, heard speakers before, and he was going to teach a lesson, and I had sat through hundreds of different lessons. So nothing extraordinary in any of that. But that day, sitting in that chapel, something different happened. I had brought my friends with me. My friends were there. They weren't expecting anything significant to happen. But that day, the word of God came to me in spirit and in power like I had never heard that message before. I had heard it hundreds of times, but that day was different. A very ordinary day that ended in a very extraordinary way. That is the way it was with the woman at the well. Not seeking an encounter, not thinking this was going to happen. She walked up to the well, stumbled up to the well, going to do her very ordinary thing when she found there a stranger who who was seeking her. And that is the providence of God. And that is the way God providentially seeks out people to be his worshipers. Now you notice that the woman didn't speak first. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water at the well. And she doesn't say anything. There's no small talk. There's no banter. There's no pleasantries exchanged at the beginning of this. There wouldn't have been in that culture because men in public did not speak to women. In fact, men in that culture didn't even speak to their wives in public. It was not the thing to do to speak to a woman in public. Jesus is there at the sixth hour and he's sitting by the well. The normal thing for her to do would be to come up, to not say a word. The normal thing for him to do would be to sit there and watch her do what she did or turn her back his back from her and let her do her business at the well and let her walk away and to not say a word to her. But she walked up and there would have been a long period of silence before Jesus said, give me a drink. And I think it's safe to assume or presume that that request came after she had drawn the water out of the well. So you can well imagine the situation. The sun is high in the sky. Jesus is sitting at the well, and up comes the woman of Samaria. Nothing is said. Silence. Very quiet and awkward silence, just like that one. As she lowered her bucket, she would have had an animal skin bucket. She would have lowered that down into the well a 100 feet to where the water was at with her rope. And she would have given a little bit of a tug, however long that would have taken, to fill that bucket up. She would have given a little bit of tug to make sure that she had a full little pouch, little animal skin bucket of water. And she would have drawn that all the way up out of there, 100 feet up out of the water. And then she would have poured the water into whatever containers or pots that she had brought out to the well to carry the water back in. And she would have been doing this several times. At some point in the midst of her drawing water up out of the well, pouring it into the bucket that she had or the container that she had to bring it all the way back to Sychar, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. It's an incredible question, a very humble question seems like an ordinary question for you and I. We wouldn't think of anything of asking a stranger for a drink. But in that culture, a man asking a woman for a drink out in the middle of something like that? Very awkward. Very stunning for him to do this, for one, just because of the the cultural setting that they were in, for him to ask her for a drink. But he says, you're giving me a drink. Now, that statement is more than just something to start a conversation. It's more than just an icebreaker. It's more than just Jesus trying to break the ice and start up a a conversation with this woman. He was thirsty. He was thirsty. He was weary, and he was thirsty. Genuine thirst. There's marvel in this condescension, and I want you to picture this. Here is the Lord of all creation, the creator of fountains and brooks and streams and oceans and rivers and lakes and ponds, and the one who causes the rain to fall from the sky on the just and the unjust. Here is that one, that majestic one, asking for water from one of his sinful creatures. Now what kind of condescension and humility is that? That is incredible, is it not? Charles Spurgeon said this, He that listens to the cries of his redeemed and with the fullness of his majestic bounty opens his hands and supplies the needs of every living thing sits there and says to this woman, Give me a drink. It just seems so incongruous for the Lord of creation to require and to ask a woman, this woman, this sinful woman, For a drink of water. And yet that is exactly the position that Jesus was in. And that is exactly what he did, was to ask her for a drink. I want you to notice here how Jesus begins the conversation. He doesn't begin the conversation by introducing who he is. He doesn't begin the conversation by confronting her with her sin. He begins the conversation by bringing up a subject that is very natural, very ordinary, very simple in the natural realm. Now I believe that before Jesus even asked the question, He knew where it was going. He knew what he was going to make, where this conversation was going to end up, and what he was going to do for this woman. Jesus knew where he was going before he started. But he didn't start with those things. He started by just asking a question. Give me a drink. Or could I have a drink? We would say it in our day. Give me a drink. A very ordinary, natural thing. He did not walk up to the woman and say, Hi, my name is Jesus. I am the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David, the King of Israel, the one sent from heaven, as the Savior of the world. Had Jesus said that, what would have happened? She's going to come to those conclusions all by herself before the conversation is over. But that's not where Jesus began. Nor did Jesus begin by walking up to her and saying, Woman, you need forgiveness because you are an adulterous, lecherous, wretched woman. didn't say that. He will get to it. He will confront her with her sin. He will get to the use of the law before he brings her grace because you always have to go through the law before you can get to the cross. He will eventually get to that. But he didn't begin that way. He starts with a very ordinary thing, a very natural subject, and he is going to very quickly swing from the natural to the supernatural, from the ordinary to the spiritual. But he didn't begin with that. He didn't jump right in the middle of her chest with her need or who he was. I was standing in line one time at a grocery store, and uh, something, a conversation that was going on with the gentleman in front of me and the checker caught my ear because it seemed to me, and I had pulled up here not too long after this guy had started getting his groceries checked out, I started to unload my stuff on the little conveyor belt deal, deal there. And, uh, he began right away sharing the gospel with this. Well, I wouldn't even say he was sharing the gospel. He was confronting this woman with her need to accept Christ. And he was saying to her, young lady, do you know Jesus as your savior? To which she kind of stumbled and, and hummed and hawed. And then he said, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. You need to ask Jesus to be your savior. Why wouldn't you ask Jesus to be your savior? Don't you know he's the Lord of all the universe who died on a cross? To, for you, and he loves you, and he wants you to be his child. Why won't you just accept Christ now? Have you ever been born again? You haven't been born again? You need to be born again. You need to have your sins forgiven and be born again. And he was just, and I was listening to the whole conversation. And this guy was going on and on, and she was really not paying too much attention to what he was saying. But she was checking his groceries out at an incredible pace. Her arms were swinging like a windmill in a hurricane. She was checking the things out, throwing them down the thing. The bag boy was doing all he could to keep up. Eggs in the bottom, bread, and then milk, whatever it took. Put the groceries in the basket. She could not take his money fast enough. That register sounded like a teletype machine. Beep, 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 And she got all of his groceries checked out without even making eye contact with him. She got all done. She couldn't make take his money fast enough. She counted out change. Unbelievable how fast she did that. I'm not even sure it was accurate, but she gave him back his change and went on just trying to check out my groceries, the the box boy, the grocery bagger boy, he got everything into the cart, pushed the cart over to the gentleman, and the, cart, the gentleman kind of said his parting comments, still hounding her about trusting Jesus and, and turning to Jesus and accepting Jesus, making a decision, all of that, and with a smile he kind of walked on. An elderly gentleman with a beard, really nice. Now, he did all of this with a grin, with as much zeal as he could muster, with as much passion as he could muster, and it was a lot of passion and a lot of zeal. And when he was gone, the lady looked at the bag boy, With this look that just screamed, wow, where did that weirdo come from? I hope I never see another one of them again. And then she looked at me, because I was next in line, and I had watched and listened to this whole thing unfold. She looked at me as if to say, I am so sorry that you had to sit and to suffer through the ramblings of that weirdo. That was the look on her face, almost apologetic to me. Now, I didn't say anything, and in my mind, I was sitting there. I was at a total loss for words. Which is not, that doesn't happen very often. I didn't know what to say. Did I apologize for this guy? I believe he was a believer. And I believe that his motivations were pure. His zeal I could not fault. His passion I could not fault. His love for her I'm sure was there. And you may disagree with this, but I'm not entirely sure that the gospel was well served by that encounter. With how he did it. I think he could learn something about tact and grace and how to use opportunities wisely from our Lord. Because this man just jumped in this woman's chest with the gospel and kept just pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding without seeming any tact at all. Now, I learned two very important things that day. Number one, the fastest way to speed up a checker is to start talking about Jesus. (laughs) That will turn any lane into an express lane faster than you can imagine. Because all of us get the checker who has to comment on every item that you bring across the register. And, it can, and she wants to have a conversation about it and examine everyone and treat it. I mean, you can, be bagging a, you can be buying a bag of socks. And she will slowly place it in the bottom of the grocery bag like you're buying some 10th century BC Ming Dynasty relic that's worth a million dollars. And you're thinking to yourself, it's a bag of socks. Just throw it in the bag so I can get out of here. That's how you speed them up. The second very significant thing that I learned is that you and I can do to learn a lesson about tact and grace and timing and sharing the gospel. Jesus with this woman did not introduce himself straight out. Spurgeon said Jesus kind of threw the hook out when you're fishing for men. You throw the hook out on the one side and you jiggle it. You throw the hook out on the other side and you jiggle it. And pretty soon the fish bites. That's exactly what the Lord does here. You see him, give me a drink. Just starting up a conversation. And then later on he's gonna say, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me. Oh, I need to know more. So she asks him more. And Jesus lures her in with this carefully thought-through conversation that gives her a little bit of information at a time, but begins with a very ordinary thing and then transitions to a very extraordinary subject. That's that's a good that's a good pointer. Let me let me caution you on the other side. Don't say to yourself, you know, I've only known this person for 15 years, or I've only been working with this person for 12 years. I'm not quite sure I want to rush presenting them with the gospel. No, you could do that this afternoon. You could go up to somebody you've known that long and say, where are you going to go when you die? Trust me, that's not rushing it. Sometimes we err on the side of taking too long to get around to the main thing rather than just addressing it. We are not like the old man in the grocery store, and we seldom err on the side of making too much out of it and approaching it too fast. Most of us err on the other side of dragging our feet and using, well, I just don't want to rush it as an excuse for our inactivity when it comes to sharing the gospel. Jesus' timing was perfect. So we learn a little bit tact, and we move on. Now look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. The woman, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Verse 8 says the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now I think that that statement does two things. Number one, it explains that Jesus was alone with this woman at the well. He had this conversation not in front of a crowd. He had this conversation with her not in front of his disciples even. Jesus is alone at the well with the woman when they're having this discussion. I think the the insight into this is perfect because Jesus is not confronting her with her adultery, which we'll see later on. He does not confront her with her adultery in front of a crowd of people which might embarrass her. He's going to bring up a very sensitive subject with her and he's going to press the law against her to show her her need for a Savior and her sin, but he doesn't do it publicly in front of everybody. I think there's some wisdom in that. Jesus was alone with this woman, but listen, it was not in any inappropriate way. What time was it? High noon. It was noon when Jesus was alone with this woman and it was outside, not inside. It was out in public. He would have been within a visual the ability to see him, by anybody who was surrounding this, out working in the fields or standing under the trees or whatever, he was alone with her, but he was visible with her so that there would be no hint of impropriety. Now, there would never be impropriety with the Lord. Never. But you can imagine the the uncomfortableness if we had read in John chapter 4 the same thing we read in John chapter 3, that the woman at the well came to Jesus by night to discuss the situation of her soul. That would be improper, would it not? Providentially, the Lord Jesus, outside in front of everybody, kept things right above board so there would be no hint of impropriety. Men, there's a lesson here. You should never under any circumstances be alone, even with the purest of motives, even with with the loveliest of women, to share the gospel in a situation alone. Never. But Jesus was alone with this woman, but not in any way which would hint of impropriety. The second thing that that statement does is not only indicates that Jesus was alone, but I think it explains why it is that he was thirsty and he didn't have anything to draw water with. You notice down in verse 11, the woman says to him, Sir, the well is deep and you have nothing to draw water with. Now in those days, Leon Morris in his commentary on John makes a very significant observation. In those days, traveling bands like Jesus and his disciples would have carried with them a little animal skin bucket and their own string or rope for lowering the bucket down into the well for just such occasions as this. Out traveling through the hot Israeli territory, they would come across wells scattered all over the land, some in the middle of village squares, some on people's land, where they would be able to draw water up out of the well. But not every well was equipped with a bucket and a rope that sat right next to the well. Most wells didn't have that. So people who traveled never wanted to be without the bucket and the string, so they would carry that little animal skin bucket with them so they could draw water out of any any well that they came to. So why is it that Jesus didn't have the animal skin bucket and the rope? Leon Morris suggests, possibly because the disciples had gone into the town to buy food and inadvertently taken the animal skin bucket and the rope with them. So Jesus is without anything to draw water up out of the well. Verse 8 would explain why it is that he had nothing, because the disciples had gone away into the city to buy the food. Now look at verse 9. The woman's response to Jesus. Verse 9, she says, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Now, I read that as very simple without any intonation in my voice as I possibly could. Verse 9 is one of those verses in Scripture where I wish we could hear the tone with which these words were said. I wish we could hear the tone with which the words were said. I wish we could see the body language and the facial expressions with which these words were uttered because you could take these words in one of two ways depending on the tone with which you read them. Let me illustrate it for you. It could be that she is expressing shock or amazement. Whoa, how, how is it that you being a Jew would ask me a Samaritan for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman. Culturally, this cuts right across the grain. talked You Jews don't talk to a Samaritan, so you're different than the rest of the Jews. Why? Why would you be different? She's shocked and perplexed that he would even bring this up or raise the issue. So it's just one of amazement. Or it could be, depending on the tone, that she is expressing disdain of her own toward him. As if to say this, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? You Jews want nothing to do with us Samaritans till you need something. And then once you need something, you're willing to come to us to get what you want. So how is it that you, being one of these elitist Jews, now we're in a position of need, and you can ask me a Samaritan for a drink. You see the sort of racial, divisive intonation in that tone? Which is it? I wouldn't die for this, but I would go with the second. A Couple reasons why. Throughout the passage, she, she, not him, she, continually brings up the racial issue. See in verse 12, "Our father Jacob. What's she doing? She's claiming Jacob as her own father, and sort of in an uh in um what's the word? Um implying an implication, putting Jesus outside of that picture. Our father Jacob, I don't think she's including Jesus in that picture, but she is talking about her well. This is Jacob's well. Jacob is our father, this is our well, it's on our territory. Here you are, stranger on our territory, asking me for a drink. That's verse twelve. In verse twenty, she mentions the division between the, the Jews and the Samaritans regarding worship. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship. We worship in, on Mount Gerizim. So which one is right? You Jews, you people, or us people? It's she that continually brings up this race issue. And Jesus doesn't even throw the ball back to her when she does it. And I think she's doing the same thing here. How is it that you, being a Jew, are now in a position to ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? You don't want anything to do with us until you need something. And once you need something from us, here you come begging before me for a drink. And here I am, a Samaritan, in a position to offer to you, a Jew, a drink. Second reason I think that it's the second, the disdain, is because of Jesus' rebuke in verse 10. He says to her, if you knew who you were talking to, you wouldn't be puffing yourself up so. You would be asking me for a drink. In other words, lady, if you only knew who you were talking to, you would realize that you need something from me instead of me needing something from you. I've asked you for a drink, but really the really needy one here is not me, it is you. And if you only knew who I was, you would be asking for me rather than thinking that you are in a position to condescend to me. So I think there is in verse 9 a very condescending tone that this woman takes with the Lord. How is it that you being a Jew asked me a Samaritan for a drink? Hmm? Kind of snarky, isn't it? I think it was snarky. Now listen, I wouldn't die for that. If you come up later on and you say, oh, I never read it like that. Well, that's fine. But I think there is some racial sort of snarky overtones here because that seems to be what she brings up over and over again. Now look at the parenthetical statement at the end of verse 9. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's an improper translation. I'm not sure how it got in the ESV and the NASB and the New King James and the NIV and all of that. The word dealings really meant to use with. That's its literal rendering, to use with. It was not true that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. What does verse 8 say? The disciples went into town to do what? To buy food. Samaritan food from a Samaritan village and a Samaritan villager. They're buying this food. Jews did have dealings with Samaritans. Strained dealings, but dealings nonetheless. Hostile dealings, but dealings nonetheless. They did deal with one another. There were the elitist Jews who would never set foot on Samaritan soil, would never ever talk to any Samaritan, would never touch a Samaritan or even look at a Samaritan, but they were the rare Jews. Most of the Jews of that day would have dealings with Samaritans. So verse 9 is not talking about Jews having absolutely nothing ever to do with Samaritans. What it is describing is this. No Jew, even a common Jew, no Jew would drink out of a Samaritan utensil. And the word was literally used, the word dealings there was literally used of sharing utensils. To have no dealings with meant to, to not use with. Jews would not use with Samaritans. They would not use utensils. No Jew would ever drink out of a Samaritan bucket, out of a Samaritan cup, eat food out of a Samaritan bowl. They would deal with one another and talk with one another, but no Jew would ever defile himself by drinking out of a Samaritan bucket. And that, I think, is what John is describing. The Jews have no dealings with and do not use with Samaritans. So that is one thing that shocks the woman. How is it that you, being a Jew, now would condescend far enough to use my utensils? Because Jews didn't use utensils with Samaritans. And Jesus cut across all of the racial and cultural taboos of his day in order to reach this woman with the gospel. And this, I think, is the second lesson that you and I can learn from this encounter between Jesus and the woman. Jesus grew up in an era and a time and in a culture that was just as filled with racism and division and prejudices and uh, inequities as the era in which you and I live. He lived in it. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews hated Gentiles. Gentiles hated Jews. It was man versus woman. It was this race against that race. It was this class against that class. The Jews in the South looked down on the Jews in the North. The Jews in the North disdained the Jews in the South. Everybody disdained Samaritans. Everybody disdained people from Nazareth. It was constantly going on. We have the same thing that happens in our day. We have Hispanics versus blacks, and blacks versus whites, and whites versus Hispanics, and liberals versus conservatives, and this group versus that group, and Red Sox fans versus Yankees, and all the other silly stuff that goes with that. Seattle fans versus San Francisco. Not so silly, but a division nonetheless. All of these divisions which separate us. Jesus cut across all of that in his day. He was raised with it. He was surrounded by it. It was food and drink to the Jews of his days to be so racially charged. Food and drink to them. And though Jesus lived among it and though Jesus trafficked among these people, he never imbibed it and he never participated in it. Never once. Was he a Jew? He certainly was. But he was a Jew who was the offer of salvation to the whole world. He was a Jew, but he was the Savior for all mankind. There's not another Savior for anybody else of any other different group. And Jesus refused to adopt all of the racism and all of the division and all of the controversy and all of the rivalry and all of the prejudices of his day, and he cut straight across it. Just because Samaritans were hated by Jews did not mean that Jesus hated them just because that was a societal or cultural norm. He did not hate Gentiles just because that was the cultural norm. He did not look down upon or snob, uh, snub women just because that was the cultural norm. You notice how many cultural and societal taboos which have nothing to do with Scripture and nothing to do with God's Word that Jesus is walking all over in the dust here? Men didn't talk to women. He's breaking that taboo. He did it all the way through His ministry. He talked to Mary in public and Martha in public and women all over the place in public. He constantly did that. He cut across all of the racial divisions and being willing to offer salvation to a Samaritan and walk through Samaria and talk with them and spend two days in the Samaritan village. Listen, if you are going to reach people with Christ for Christ, you will never be able to do it if you are a racist or if you are prejudiced. You cannot do it because you will never take the gospel to somebody that you disdain because of their skin color or because of their ethnic origin, or because of their looks, or because you knew somebody who belonged to that ethnicity at one time, and they did you wrong, you'll never be able to reach them with the gospel. You cannot do it. You will never take to them the good news, because you don't love them enough to love them to the good news. You can't do it. Charles Spurgeon said, you might as well try and warm up an oven with snowballs as to, reach some, as to try and reach a soul for Christ with a condescending and disdainful attitude and tone of voice. You can't do it. It to cut across the racial barriers. Our world constantly tries to force upon us animosities and hostilities and prejudices and racism that we have no part in and you should never want. Constantly. Watch the news for one week. Watch the news for one week. And you will find yourself walking away with an animosity toward lawyers, doctors, liberals, conservatives, politicians, blacks or whites or Hispanics or gang members or politicians or women or men or politicians. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And that's the food and drink of our culture, and they just force it on us. And as believers, we should have nothing to do with it, nothing whatsoever. You're sensible people, and I'd leave that to you to analyze your own heart, how you feel about some people groups or people. You cannot reach somebody for the gospel if there is a wall a division that's between you and them. You have to get over that. That is exactly what Jesus does in this encounter. Two things, two things. Number one, he started with something natural. He swung it to something supernatural in a very gracious and gentle way. Second, he cut across all of the societal and cultural divisions that separated him from this woman. He was a man, she was a woman. He was a Jew, she was a Samaritan. Everything in the culture said you should have nothing to do with each other. Don't talk to each other. Just leave each other alone. And Jesus broke down that wall, walked right across it, and stepped over where she was at in order to reach her with the gospel. And that's what you and I are called to do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of our Lord who was indeed a model soul winner. We thank you that he stepped down from heaven and bridged that gap between us and between you. We thank you that he has condescended and humble enough to come down here and to die for our sins. That grace is simply too amazing for us to comprehend. We pray, O God, that you would give to us hearts of compassion for those around us who are lost and without the gospel. Give us also the boldness to befriend them and to bring the gospel to them in a compassionate and gentle way. And may you do this for your own glory's sake, that you might be pleased to use us to reach our friends and our neighbors and our family members, that you would be pleased to use us to glorify yourself through the proclamation of truth. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.